note, this is fucking bad. We're in a lot of trouble. Hey everybody, it's Monday. Welcome to the podcast. It's Monday, May 15th. And as we do every Monday, uh, Sunday review of the mainstream media, including tearing into the New York Times. I'm not going to show any segments from um, CBS Face the Nation this week because Maggie Brennan didn't really interview anybody of import. Uh, She talked about the border crisis, the end of Title 42, with some familiar faces, but, um, you know, frame the argument in in loose liberal terms without acknowledging the economic toll the surge at the border is having on the United States. But I will be uh, delving into... Sunday Morning Propaganda on CBS Sunday Morning, where correspondent Lee Cowan talked about America's historical acceptance of refugees, but he framed it falsely in a racist, xenophobic, anti-Semitic narrative, which I tried to edit out most of that shit, but you'll see how much of a psyop it is. Um, And he talks about how new legislation is needed uh, to meet the challenges at the border today. Um, obviously, there, there's no consensus. I'll be tearing into the New York Times and showing that, in fact, they have a story that there's no consensus on immigration law because the Republicans want to tighten the border before they talk about anything else, which is what should be done. It's the proper way to do it. Otherwise, you incentivize more immigration. So... Uh, I'm going to be tearing into the New York Times. Uh, so we're going to start off the first story here. Asylum debate. Snarls efforts to forge an immigration deal in Congress because, you know, they have to make immigration law. But the Democrats want to let everybody in and let everybody stay, which indeed is incentive for more people to come. That's the problem. Despite hopes of, uh, they they go on to write in the subhead here, despite hopes among some Democrats and Republicans at the expiration of a strict pandemic era border rule will force a compromise, bipartisan talks have sputtered. And they go into the the lead by this uh, article by Karun Demersian, a crush of asylum claims at the U.S.-Mexico border is complicating already intractable, intractable, Immigration debate on Capitol Hill pulling the two parties further apart and threatening to undermine what some lawmakers have viewed as the best hope for a decade for Congress to forge a comprehensive immigration deal. For decades, bipartisan discussions on such a compromise focused on pairing beefed up border security, indeed, because any, you know, any caving to the progressives will be incentive for more people to come. So that's why you have to close the border. With a pathway to legalization for undocumented immigrants and expanded legal pathways to entry, but in recent years, an explosion in the number of migrants asking for asylum, a protected status for those fearing persecution in their home uh, country has scrambled the equation, exposing deep political and moral divisions. And then they talk about that. And so everybody knows, well, if you don't know, everybody should know what the deal is, is that 
the Democrats keep incentivizing people to come here. Now, people want to come here. Most of the world wants to come to America. You know, I'm not touting American exceptionalism. It's just a free country, and so you can make your way because that's what the country is based on, people making their way. You know, whatever you start from, you could uh, become affluent, uh, even if you start very poor, if you work hard. That's the idea. Um, but they don't understand is as long as you keep incentivizing this crush at the bar, uh, the border, this surge, um, what you have to do is you have to close the border. You have to tell people, do not come. You will not be let in. And then we could talk about what we're going to do about uh, amnesty or, you know, asylum, what constitutes asylum. If you're a homosexual in Colombia, you get to come here. Uh, that's not the case. So moving on, Biden's slow star start worries Democrats, and this is from the New York Times, aides assist all as well, insist. I'm sorry, it's a, it is Monday and it is a little bit early for me still. Um, Biden's slow start worries Democrats, aides insist all as well. Some Democrats fear that the campaign's early sluggishness shows a lack of urgency ahead of possible rematch against Donald Trump. His aides say they know what they're doing. Sure, because... Uh, they'll just cheat to get him in. He'll, he won't have to campaign much. He already puts lids on the president. Biden puts lids on his day, like, you know, one o'clock, <laughs> nine o'clock in the morning. No more, no more appearances. There's no way he's going to be able to campaign. Not like Trump can. Um, he'll lose. Realistically, he'll lose. Now it's not about who votes. It's about who counts the vote. So two weeks of President Biden unveiled his re-election bid. His campaign manager has yet to start the job. His seven co-chairs have not had a group discussion and his team has made little outreach to allies in Congress. For all the attention on Mr. Biden's gauzy announcement video <laughs> and the symbolism his campaign attributed to the day he entered the race, precisely four years after he began in 2020 bid, and the same message of saving the nation's very soul. There's little evidence of the typical preparation for a national political campaign because he will either die or they'll cheat. It's going to be like weekend at Bernie's. He could be dead and he'll still be elected. The, the re Nobody wants Biden. The, in the back of the paper, actually, in the New York Times, they, had, they were asking African-Americans why they were soured on Joe Biden. Uh, more unfulfilled promises from the Democrats and in, in, in in the case of the black community. North Carolina governor vetoes abortion ban, but over but faces override. Now, it's not a ban. If you allow abortion and you limit, they see the problem is leftists call a, a, an abortion ban when you limit when you could get one. That's not a ban. That's just a limit on abortion. Uh, they make it illegal after the fetus becomes viable. So uh, that's not a ban. You could get an abortion. How many uh, menstrual cycles do you have to miss? How many periods do you have to miss to realize that you're pregnant? You go to the doctor. I mean, they make it sound like, oh, you know, I'm six months pregnant and, and you know, I don't know what to do. I mean, come on. So it's like nine weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks, whatever it is, that's not a ban. A ban means you can't get an abortion in the state. So uh, the governor of North Carolina, Roy Cooper vetoed a ban on abortion. See, they don't even, in the first part of the sentence, the governor of North Carolina, Roy Cooper, vetoed a ban on abortion that was passed by the state's Republican-led legislature. The bill prohibited 
abortion past 12 weeks. That's not a ban. A ban is like, oh, they have to characterize it as all right. Oh, outright ban with some exceptions for rape, incest, or to preserve the life and health of the mother. The veto by Mr. Uh, Cooper, a Democrat, sets him up for a showdown with the legislature, which now has a slim Republican supermajority. Well, it's a supermajority. Why did they call it slim when it's a supermajority? So dumb. A slim supermajority, that means it has the power to override his veto and enact a ban if the party can muster enough votes, which they will. And it's not a ban. They keep calling it a ban. It's a limit on abortion. On legal abortion is limited to X amount of weeks because it's not really, you're not aborting. It's just, that's the reality of, that's when they said, oh, they're proposing, when Democrats think ban, they think you won't be able to get an abortion. That's not true. You'll be able to get an abortion. You just can't wait four months to get an abortion. You got to do it right away. You find out you're pregnant, you know, oh, the news. Why don't you think about if I ever were to get pregnant at this time in my life, what would I do? Then you don't have to wait till you actually get pregnant to start humming and hawing about what you're going to do. So, of course, the New York Times and a lot of other leftist publications are telegraphing the next pandemic, which is going to come. Certainly, if, Trump's, if, Trump, if Trump beats the cheat, he and he gets reelected they will be there will be another pandemic miraculously you don't have one in you know 50 years or 100 years you don't have a panda a major a global pandemic in 100 years so you're going to have two in in eight you know 4 years or 5 years or whatever it's just going to keep going on and on and on you know whenever they need to 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 flip the switch so experts see lessons for next pandemic as COVID emergency comes to an end. And I just wanted to go through um, what they're saying here in this um, article by Cheryl Gay Stolberg and Noah Wieland. A lot went wrong during the coronavirus pandemic as the virus tore through the polarized nation and public health leaders, policymakers, and elected officials struggled to respond. Bullshit. They had been doing drills, even a few months before the virus supposedly arrived in the United States, they were doing a tabletop exercise. So it's not like they weren't preparing. Of course they were preparing and they did exactly what they wanted to do. Getting the message right, they say. The public health experts say when managing an infectious disease outbreak, communication is, is not part of the response. It is the response. Well, right. And, and even though they had been doing tabletop exercises the, uh, the New York Times says they got it wrong. They didn't get it wrong. It went exactly they wanted to scare the shit out of everybody. Make it easy to share data, they say. The CDC was hamstrung during the pandemic by antiquated data systems and inconsistent data sharing between federal government, state, and health providers. Unlike Britain and Israel that have socialized medicine. I mean, come on. So it's, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a vote for socialized medicine. That's what we need socialized medicine in case another pandemic. Think carefully about school uh, about school closures. Kids weren't at risk. N most people, nine out of 10 people survived easily. Probably 99 out of 100 people survived. It was not as dangerous as people made it out to be. And the people that were advocating for herd immunity, which is exactly what happened because the, the, <laughs> the vaccine apparently did nothing to, to change the trajectory of the pandemic, 
stockpile vital supplies, uh, maybe unlinked from China. Did you know China bought all the uh, masks in the United States and shipped them back to China? So in, in January of, of 2020, if you looked, like I did, as soon as I figured out what the fuck was happening, I went to Home Depot, no particle masks, which are the N, you know, N95 particle mask. Invest in vaccines early. So why don't we, even though there's no pandemic, we should spend billions of tax dollars on pharmaceutical companies. Quickly set up large randomized trials. Oh, right, we have to do more trials? But I thought the vaccine was safe and effective. Why would we have to do trials? But don't rely only on vaccines, they say. Right, because the vaccine didn't work. But don't rely only on vaccines. Oh, did you learn some lessons, did we? I don't think so. These people are fucking idiots. So, and then we got a couple opinion pieces in the New York Times uh, to go over. And then we're going to get into um, CBS Sunday Morning with Lee Cowan and the whole thing at the border where they say, trying to keep people out of your country is xenophobic, anti-Semitic, racist. You know, and that's how they frame the argument with a couple little caveats of PSYOP going on there, which I'll show you. But first, in the opinion piece of Jamel Bowie, of course, A Gun-Filled America, which was the original title of the op-ed, uh, opinion piece in the New York Times, but they changed it online. A Gun-Filled America is a world of fear and alienation. Now, Jamel Bowie says, another week, another shooting. This one was in Allen, Texas, a city about 25 miles north of Dallas where the gunman killed at least people and injured at least seven others before he was killed by a police officer he used as a standard these days, AR-15 style rifle, which isn't used in most shootings. It's an anomaly. Why it keeps happening? That's the frequency of mass shootings in the United States means there is a ritual of sorts associated with each occurrence. Republican politicians offer thoughts and prayers. Democratic politicians contend those offering only thoughts and prayers and their respective allies in the media trade barbs over gun control. And then he goes into this thing about Megyn Kelly, who has moved far to the right since uh, she was bleeding out of everywhere. A common Fox News anchor. She's not a common Fox News anchor took part in the ritual with a series of tweets castigating gun control proponents for focusing on, well, gun control. Serious cue for gun control advocates who failed to affect change. She said, please face it, you can't do it thanks to the Second Amendment. We're all well aware you don't like that fact, but the fact is, what's next? Must we just say, here, sad, concerned, lamenting? Could we possibly talk about other solutions? Kelly instead argues... Focusing our attention on the proliferation of high-powered rifles, we should try these other solutions that would keep guns away from the mentally ill and minimize destruction or mass shootings to occur. Mental health interventions, uh, greater willingness to lock people up. Those, well, see, the problem is, you know, I'm not even gonna get into this anymore. I get into, make it a friggin' argument. It's not an argument. Motive. What is the motive for the crime? That is the unique thing about mass shootings in this decade or several decades, I guess, since the 90s. What's the motive? So we happen to know the motive from a manifesto from the Nashville shooter, um, but we don't get to see that. So they know the motive. Um, what is the motive? What is making people go out and shoot people? Now, the recent spat on Hispanic, on Hispanic shootings in Texas in a week, there were three, 
that is inexplicable in a sense. So we we would have to get to, down to the bottom of it. There is a theory going around that's connected to the cartels and Title 42 ending. So that might be it. To me, it's always motivation. So what motivate, what's the motive? Why would someone do this? an act of heinous crime? Is it in fact that they're obviously they're mentally ill or are they mind controlled or, or whatever? There's a reason. But for three decades now, we don't want to explore, uh, explore the reason, even though we have some of these people still alive, miraculously, these wind-up toys don't all shoot themselves. We do have people in, in custody, but did we ever find out from that cruise guy in Florida that shot up the, supposedly shot up the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School. Why did he do it? Do we have any idea? That wasn't on the front page of the Times. Well, we do have a manifesto from this latest Nashville shooter. You know, this is the problem is people like to talk about shit all the time, but they don't understand why things are happening. There's a causality. It's not a correlation. It's a causality. There's a causality why people are, I mean, obviously people are lonely, despondent, desperate, angry. Okay, I get it. But why this? Why did Adam Lanza supposedly go to that school and shoot and shoot it at why? Was he angry? We don't we don't know. Oh, and his hard drive from his computer got smashed beyond recognition. Couldn't find out a thing. Just ridiculous. you know, and it's it seems like it's cover up over cover up over cover up. The fact that they're not releasing the manifesto, and if indeed the Nashville shooter was a lone gunman, then there shouldn't be an ongoing investigation. So what is in the manifesto? <laughs> That's the problem. They're not getting to the bottom of, stu of stuff because you know we know why. Because there's something there. What is it? Uh. So in this next opinion piece by Timothy Snyder, Dr. Snyder, is a professor of history at Yale University and the author of many books on fascism, totalitarianism, and European history. Um, Vladimir Putin is not a fascist, just so you know. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So, but he writes in his guest essay, Putin is fighting and losing his last war. Okay. So this guy goes into this whole diatribe of how Putin is a war criminal, he's losing, doesn't, mention NATO once in this long, oh, here it is. Beneath Mr. Putin's vague bellicosity is the idea that Russia win, that Russia wins if it avoids, in his words, strategic defeat imposed by NATO. Almost no matter what happens, it will be easy for him to define the war in Ukraine as a strategic victory. Since the Kremlin claims that it is fighting NATO, they claim, they claim they're fighting NATO. They aren't really fighting NATO, it's a claim. I'm surprised they didn't put false claim. He claims, he's the Kremlin claims. I thought it was Putin. All Mr. Putin has to say is that Russia stopped NATO from crossing into Russia, which is those were his, uh, uh, Russia's strategic concerns were the Black Sea. Because the Black Sea is, is very important to uh, Russia's projection of power, however diminished it may be. The commander of Wagner wrote recently in this spirit that Russia can end the special military operation at any time and just claim that its goals have been achieved so long as Russia 
does not retreat any more occupied Ukrainian territory. Indeed. So Russia is battling NATO, and people that refuse to acknowledge this, the CIA, U.S. Special Forces, NATO Special Forces are operating on the front lines. By taking nuclear back blackmail seriously, we have actually increased the overall chances of nuclear war. Oh, we shouldn't take it? We should go into Russia and try to assassinate Putin? I mean, this is just ridiculous. The Russians talk about nuclear weapons not because they mean to use them, but because they believe a large nuclear arsenal make them a superpower. It doesn't. Nuclear talks make them feel powerful. They see nuclear bullying as their pejorative and believe that others should automatically yield at the first mention of their weapons. The Ukrainians have not allowed this to affect their tactics. That's right. The Russians talk about nuclear weapons not because they mean to use them. Dumb, reckless, if Russia detonated a weapon, it would lose the jealously guarded treasure of superpower status. Just as an act would constitute an admission that his army has been beaten, a tremendous loss of face if they use a nuclear weapon. We're still neighbors would build or build on their own nuclear arsenals. No, they would be, the neighbors would be destroyed by the use of nuclear weapons. <laughs> so they would deprive Russia of superpower status in the minds of the Russians themselves. That is, for the Russian leadership, it is one intolerable outcome of the war. In my view, the greatest risk of Russia nuclear action would therefore be one that Moscow would lay the blame for on Ukraine, such as the deliberate destruction of the nuclear po power plant. And he goes on to say, war is unpredictable. Military history is full of surprises, is it? This guy's an idiot. Mr. Putin had uh, undertaken a war of atrocity and further atrocities are certain to, as long as the war continues, he has taken on a war, undertaken a war of, of atrocity. That's right. Russia created not only needless suffering, but also needless risk when it invaded Ukraine. We have to work within the world of risk and horror and evaluate it calmly. No option is without hazards. Our responsibility is to reduce them. When Russians talk about nuclear war, the safest response is to ensure... They're very conventional defeat. So he wants to beat Russia. So what does the defeat look like? Is it just the Russian army out of Ukraine? What about all the Russian-speaking, Russian-allied uh, citizenry of Ukraine in the east? What about those people? He, he ostensibly went in, uh, Putin did, went into Russia to protect those people that were supposedly the Western-backed government was committing genocide of sorts. So, you know, who knows? So it's taking uh, the Russians or the Russian-leaning citizens out of Eastern Ukraine um, to make everybody want to be with the West. So that's unfortunate. So we're going to go to Lee Cowan now, and... Um, and he goes on with his thing about the end of Title 42 and the history of uh, American, <sighs> which is really, it's, it's the history of American immigration. But from the very beginning, I tried to cut out of most of it as I could. He had a bunch of progressives on that are talking about America's history, obviously, like CRT, is, is founded on racism. And so the immigration history is is fraught with racism and xenophobia. And um, and there might be, in fact, some xenophobia involved in the, in the past 
immigration stance of Americans, American citizens, and uh, the American government. Not saying that there wasn't, but that's not what this is about. So they try to take that and make it like, the reason you don't want to let millions of mostly Hispanic people, um, unskilled Hispanic people come into the country is because you're racist. Not because the overwhelming influx of unskilled labor um, or is going to tax uh, the already uh, burdened system. And we were, you know, three thirty trillion dollars of debt. So let's uh, listen to uh, Jane Pauley and... Um... Chaos on the border. Chaos on the border. It seems like a crisis that's gone from bad to worse to even worse and still no end in sight. What? Chaos on the border. Up until the Civil War... We didn't even have a federal immigration policy. It was all left to the states. In 1882, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act. But by the 1920s, Americans began to worry that those from Southern and Eastern Europe were putting a strain on social services. It wasn't until refugees really started fleeing Vietnam in the late 70s, early 80s, that we arrived at a definition of just what kind of persecution qualified a refugee for asylum political persecution, religious persecution. The United States did not think of Mexicans as people who would seek asylum. They did not think of Central Americans as really people who would be seeking asylum. The unprecedented number of migrants arriving at our southern border are fleeing for reasons that don't always neatly fit that definition of refugee. More than 2.1 million people are waiting. The backlog is so deep, the average asylum case now takes between four and five years to complete. What? You arrive to a country where you think they will help you based on the stories you heard. But it wasn't like that. Henry Rivas Cibrian began seeking asylum back in 2017. Ava Benash is Henry's attorney. Not everybody's going to qualify for asylum under our statute, but everybody should have a right to make their claim. After eight months in U.S. immigration detention, Henry was released pending a court date. You're never truly settled, and knowing that it can be ripped out from you at any point, it's a tough way to live. It's remarkable how the pictures and the narrative had changed very little since this report on immigration back in the mid-'80s. But what you're seeing here is a trickle compared to today. The pressures of population, poverty, and politics, coupled with the promise of America, keep pushing the world to our borders. Our current policy is immigration anarchy, full of holes and hypocrisy. The debate over how to fix what almost everyone agrees is broken is still at a standoff. Basically, Republicans want the border tightened before they address anything else. Moments ago, House Republicans passed the strongest border security bill this country has ever seen. Democrats generally agree the border should be secure, but want overall reform. Recently, the White House opened a humanitarian back door for as many as 30,000 migrants a month. What? Congress makes the laws. Uh, the executive branch doesn't. Jonathan Skirmetti is Tennessee's attorney general. Ostensibly, the Biden administration says that this is a way to basically divert the flow away from the border, almost as a, as a relief valve. Well, it's not legal. Congress was very clear in the law. It's supposed to be for a small number of people on a case-by-case basis. He's joined 20 other red states in asking for an injunction to Biden's parole program, calling it a blatant end run around Congress. It's a tragedy when people are driven from their homes 
and it's understandable that they want to come here for the opportunities that we offer. But if everybody comes here because of every bit of adversity they encounter, we're not going to be able to take care of them. We can't wish the problem away. It's going to take hard work and hard choices to figure this out. <laughs> That's uh, that's it. It's not uh, asylum was not meant for um, millions of people, and the fact is is that uh, nine out of ten uh, migrants don't get approved for asylum. So it's kind of like this fake narrative that people are, you know, and they even frame that one vignette there of that one immigrant is that, oh, he was gay, and so they don't like gays in Colombia, wherever he was from, and so he had to flee. Um, but that's the way they frame the argument. It's not, people are coming here for economic reasons because there's no work. And if you look at the data and the news, is that a lot of these countries were devastated by COVID because they emulated the United States. And what do you do when COVID hit? They shut everything down. So it destroyed the economies of a lot of these Central American, South American countries. That was just the reality. And so there is, in fact, a program to drive migrants. And many people said, oh, it's just happening in America. It's not happening. The same thing happened in Europe. They're driving America, uh, they're driving immigrants into America and into Europe. Why is that? Uh, and that's by the purposeful collapse of economies, etc. They're not fleeing. You know, if you're fleeing war, that's asylum. Or if you're feel, uh, a fleeing political persecution, that is indeed asylum. So, you know, accepting immigrants from Venezuela, Cuba, you know, communist countries, um, that or totalitarian countries but like you said that you have to look at that on a case-by-case -case basis so whatever like i said if with any immigration law you're gonna have to close the border close the southern border um and tell everybody nobody tell the whole world nobody's gonna be allowed in and then maybe we could talk about amnesty or other solutions for people that are already here so that's just my take. Anyway, see you later. Rudy's Revelation. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow me on social media. Leave a comment down below. Click that notification bell. Give me a thumbs up. I'll see you tomorrow. the truth.